Well, do keep your Bibles uh, open at uh, that passage we're looking at this evening. John is writing at a point at which the church has already been served by receiving what we know as the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They've been in circulation for some time. Uh, we call them the Synoptic Gospels. Those Gospels are similar in the material that they cover, or at least in the period that they cover in the life of the Lord Jesus. But John, now as he uh, records his gospel, feels free then to add into the story parts which have been neglected by the other gospel writers. And so what we're seeing here this evening in these verses we've just read is John's account of the period immediately following the baptism of Jesus and before some of the events recorded in the other gospels. Jesus had just finished speaking to this great religious leader, Nicodemus. And the scene shifts from Jerusalem to the countryside and Jesus and his disciples baptizing. Actually, if you glance forward to chapter 4, verse 2, you'll find that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. That clarification is made. But verse 22 says, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. That is, they were going around after his own baptism. They were preaching the kingdom of God. They were proclaiming that the kingdom of God was arriving or had arrived. And they were proclaiming the need for a baptism of repentance. In, in other words, they were continuing at this stage the ministry of John the Baptist to Israel, calling Israel back to God, back to repentance before God, back to a relationship with God. And then in verse 23, John the Baptist is brought into the scene. Jesus is baptizing, or his people are baptizing. Verse 23, John the Baptist again gets ready, gets into the action. John also was baptizing. Uh, the water was plentiful there. People were coming. They were being baptized. John had not yet been put in prison. That puts it into the context uh, that this was the period before John's arrest and, and imprisonment. So here you have the set. This is the, the setup for the story. Jesus' people are baptizing. John and his people are baptizing. Two bands of people, two groups of people are baptizing. The ministry of John is still continuing uh, along with Jesus. Jesus is continuing the ministry of John. We're in this transitional phase between the Old Testament and the New Testament between John's work and Jesus' work, beginning proper, which the, gospel, the other Gospels uh, began with Jesus' work, beginning proper. Now we're reading about these two works that are going on simultaneously. Jesus is continuing the work of John. And for some reason, these, these, these ministries going on side by side triggers a dispute over purification, the, the Jewish purification rituals between John's disciples and a certain Jewish man. Look at verse 25. A discussion arose, or more like an argument, or a dispute arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So the issue, the issue, the presenting issue apparently, has to do with ritual purity. And that subject has already been raised by John earlier on in what we call chapter 2 of John's Gospel, where Jesus, you remember, replaces the water in the great jugs for ritual purification. He t changes the water into Chateauneuf-de-Pape, uh, into wine, sorry. And, 
uh, that, that, that whole issue, that whole issue was challenging the whole question of purification within Judaism. Well, now this question is raised with John's disciples. And uh, it may, we don't know the reason this man brought it up. We know that in, in the minds of the popular masses, the baptism of John had to do with purification. It was connected in the preaching of John to repentance. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's linking the baptism of John, which he's, his men are practicing, to the issue of repentance. So the issue of purity, the issue of getting right with God, of being cleansed by God, was on the agenda. It was up front and on the agenda. And we don't know what this, this Jew's problem was. Maybe this Jew was asking John and Jesus' disciples and so on, was questioning the, the fact that the, this preaching that was going on was addressed to Jews, Orthodox Jews, and that the ritual cleansing, baptism, was normally applied to Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. And maybe this Jew was questioning, why, why is this? Why do I, as an Orthodox, Bible-believing, synagogue-going, Torah-keeping Jew, how, why do I have to be submitted to this, to this ritual, which is for the unclean Gentiles who have to be cleaned up in order to become Jews. Maybe that was the issue. We're not told, actually, what the issue was. It's just left hanging. We don't know too much more about the dispute, what the arguments were, or how they differed over the issue. But what we do know is that these two groups of men, the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John, held a lot in common. Both of them believed John was sent from God, that he was a prophet sent from God. Both of them believed Jesus had been identified by John as being the Messiah. The Jewish man's question then may have raised other questions in the mind of John's disciples. But by the time we get to verse 26, it seems as if the issue is no longer the issue. You notice this. The issue of purification doesn't seem to be at the tip of their tongue. We, that is the issue that provokes this. They come to John, verse 26, and they said to him, Rabbi, now look very carefully at the text. Look at the way in which they refer to Jesus. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan. What are they doing? What are they doing? They're kind of dismissing Jesus a little bit. They're kind of relegated him to he who was with you. These disciples of John have a problem. He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Well, yeah, yeah, we were there and we heard what you said about him. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, can you pick up the tone of their question. Can you see in the tone of their question a degree of jealousy perhaps? A sense of rivalry? They, they depersonalize Jesus. They, they talk about the people. Everybody is going to him. Everybody is following him. Everybody is running out after him. And suddenly we have to say that the issue isn't the issue. The issue of purification isn't the issue, they saw Jesus as a rival to their hero, their master, their leader, their teacher, John the baptizer. Now we know, we know that that's how John 
sees their question. We know that from his response. Because John takes the conversation in an entirely different direction. And he focuses the minds of his people on three things. On who Jesus is, on who he, John, is, and on why it matters. Those three things. He focuses their attention, first of all, on who Jesus is. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That applied to him, of course. John himself couldn't do what he did, couldn't preach as he did, couldn't baptize as he did, couldn't uh, gather disciples as he did unless that had been given to him by heaven. But he's thinking of Jesus. Jesus is on his mind. And he says, only heaven or above, from above. That's, that's an alternative Jewish way of referring to God without using God's name. It was considered disrespectful to use God's name. And so sometimes it talks about the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven, and heaven is a euphemism for God. So when it says, nobody can do anything or receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven, it's saying, unless it's given to him by God. And what he's arguing is, he's making a general point, that anything that is at our disposal, any gift that we might have, any strength or ministry that we might engage in, is ultimately due to God. Any success we have in our Christian living, in our living for God, in our service for God, anything we have, anything at all, has to be given by God. In other words, what he's saying about Jesus in that statement is entirely consistent with his previous witness to Jesus. John is not at all surprised that people are going after Jesus. He is not at all surprised that Jesus is gathering more people than he is. He recognizes, in other words, that it is within the will and the plan of the sovereign God who has written a script of Jesus' life as well as his own life, and who is superintending the outworking of his purpose in Jesus' life as well as in his life, that people are leaving him and going to Jesus. And he recognizes this. He recognizes that if anybody goes to Jesus, it is because the Father has given them to Jesus. A person cannot receive one thing, one person, let alone a throng of people, unless it has been given him from God. And this idea of givenness from God is one that Jesus himself picks up later in chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, the, these words of John the Baptist are here because they underline and confirm the sovereign work of God in people coming to Jesus. That's what he'd spoken about back in chapter 3.21 He's, and here again, and then again in chapter 3, 8. And he's saying to his disciples, you wonder why it is that they're turning from me and going to Jesus. My answer is, God is doing this. God is in this. God is superintending this. God is giving them to his Son. And then in verse 28, he tells them, his disciples, John tells them, now, this is no surprise because God sent him for this very thing. You, you yourselves, look at verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Messiah. 
but I have been sent before him. John is saying to them, look, this is why I'm here. This is my job description. My job description was never to save people, never to be the savior of the world, never to achieve eternal life for men and women. That wasn't my job. My job was to go before him, to be his forerunner, to get people ready, to inform minds and, and, and stimulate thought and bring people to repentance and create, by the grace of God, a hunger in people's hearts. So that when the Messiah came, people would know this is the one, this is the one, this is the one. It was God's purpose to gather a people and give them to Jesus. And my role was to gather people and hand them on to Jesus. I came from nowhere and I go back to nowhere and I give the people to Jesus. Look at the language he uses. Jesus is the bridegroom. Here's a metaphor that he, that he uses of Jesus. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Remember, John's coming from an Old Testament perspective here. He understands that the people of God, Israel, are the bride of Yahweh. They're, they're the Lord's bride. He says the people of God, the believing community of God's people, are God's bride. They, they belong to God. And here is Jesus coming to the come into the scene, and, and therefore the bride belongs to him. The believing community of God's people belong to him. And in the later New Testament, we, we see this clearly stated, don't we, that the bride is the church. It is the community, the believing community of people who have been given to Jesus. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's Emmanuel. He's come to get the bride. He's come to pick and choose his church. And then he emphasizes, do you notice, the bridegroom's voice. He's the friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist, but he greatly rejoices over the voice of the bridegroom. Now, I wonder why he, he delights in the voice of the bridegroom. Well, it wasn't to do with his accent, obviously. Well, so what, what, what was it about the voice of the bridegroom that gets John's attention. Remember how John described himself back in 123. He calls himself a voice crying in the wilderness. John had gone out there preaching and he had gathered people around him. They'd come to hear him preach. Now they're all leaving and they're going to Jesus. Why? Well, John says this is the reason. Because there's another voice, a greater voice, a superior voice, a stronger voice. A divine voice that is being heard. In this gospel, later, we will read, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. The bridegroom has come looking for his bride. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. He's come to gather his people. He's calling them by name. The bridegroom has a bride. The bride know his voice. The bride follows his voice. They recognize his voice. They come to Jesus. And so the people leave John, and they go to him. And John rejoices in the voice of the bridegroom as the voice 
gathers the bride. No wonder in verse 30 he summarizes it by saying, He must increase, and I must decrease. That must is a divine imperative. It must be so. It must be so. The must of verse 30 is very important. It's a divine plan, purpose. This is God's must. God gives people to Jesus. They leave John the Baptist, they go to Jesus. This is God's doing. And in verse 28, God sends John not to be the Messiah, but to go before the Messiah. That's part of God's must as well. And in verse 29, John focuses on the bridegroom's voice, because this is the voice that will raise the dead. This is the voice known by the sheep, and they follow it. This is the voice that woos and wins those who are distant. This is the voice that the bride recognizes and follows. So to sum up God's work in verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. This is the plan of God. The Son of God will be exalted. He will be glorified. He'll get bigger, greater. He'll increase in the eyes of men. And this is what Jesus, what John has to say about Jesus. But who is John then? Who John is? Look at what he says in verse 21. Jesus said in verse 21 that unlike the man who loves darkness and hates light, the man who does the truth comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We, we looked at that before. In other words, one of the main marks of a born-again person One of the main marks of a truly believing person who loves God, has a relationship with God, is that that person loves people to know that anything good about them, anything good they do, anything they achieve, anything they've ever done for God in the world, any deeds, actions, attitudes, affections, activities, done in the name of God and for God, that any of that and all of that, all of that is carried out in God. That is in the power of God. A believer loves to make it clear that it's all of God. All of God. It's not just a theatrical thing. Oh, give God the glory. No, no. This is is the inbuilt imprint on his heart and mind, that everything is a work of God's sovereign grace. Now listen to, listen to John. This is how John sees himself. You, you listen to all we've learned about John in this gospel so far, starting in chapter 1, verse 8. John says, I am not the light, Jesus. I am not the Christ, it's Jesus. I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet, and I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, and I'm not worthy to unstrap Jesus' sandals, What's he doing? He's saying, take the spotlight off me. Take it away from me. Put all of the emphasis and focus on Jesus. Somebody who knows God, you see, wants all the glory to be his. Again, what did Jesus say? Those who love the truth come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God. So how does John see himself? He sees himself as someone who has done anything that he has done only in God, by God's power, 
and by God's grace. And he goes further. He, he calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. The shushbin or shoshbin in Hebrew was a familiar role in Jewish life. The friend, we might call him the bride, uh, the, what's the um, best man, best man. He was the one who assisted the groom before and during the wedding and in everything to do with the wedding itself. In fact, so important was the friend of the bridegroom that in Jewish sources, they often referred to God, the Father, being the friend of the bridegroom in the Garden of Eden. It was God who was Adam's best man at his wedding. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? We're not told that in the Bible, but it's a lovely picture that, uh, that God was Adam's best man in the garden. Well, says John, it was his business to be the friend of the bridegroom. And as the friend of the bridegroom, of course, his goal, his purpose, his reason for being was achieved at that point at the wedding supper when standing by the groom's side, he could see the sheer joy, the sheer joy on the bridegroom's face as he looked into the eyes of his bride. That was a high point of, groom's, of the best man's job, the friend's job. That was the kind of thing he was looking for. That was his purpose. Now look at verse 29. That's what John emphasizes. The friend, that's John, of the bridegroom, that's Jesus, stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy is, that is mine, this joy of mine, is now complete. Joy. John the Baptist is saying, you've come and told me that all these people are going after Jesus and you expect me to be really upset. You, you expect me to feel jealous and envious. You expect me to get all depressed and down that they're all going after him to hear him and that somehow or other he is now the focus of attention and my day is gone and is past. John says, I need you to know I need you to know with all the clarity that I, can, that I can use to emphasize this to you. It gives me the most enormous joy to know that the Christ, the Messiah, has come. It gives me the most intense pleasure to know that people are going after Jesus. It gives me the most complete, full, and utter happiness of my entire life to know that everything I was made for, everything I was conceived in my mother's womb for, everything I have lived my life for, has now reached its apex, its epitome, that this moment has arrived when my Savior has arrived on the scene and men and women and boys and girls are going out after Him. John is magnifying Jesus. He is exalting Jesus. He is raising Jesus high. And he is putting Jesus up there before our eyes and saying, Look at him. Look at him. Go to him. He alone and he alone is life. That was, the, that was John the Baptist's role. When he says he must increase and I must decrease, he's saying something bigger than it appears. He is saying this is God's timing. This is the divinely planned, sovereignly ordained, salvation historical moment towards which 
everything has been moving, including my life. He must increase, and I must decrease. Here is John straddling these two ages, two worlds, two eras. The time of expectation has run its course. The time of fulfillment has arrived. The star in the night sky, John, has been eclipsed by the brilliant sunshine of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, that has risen. He must increase, I must decrease. His whole ministry was transitional in its nature. He must increase, and I must decrease. It was a, it was a devotional thing. Christ must increase in the affections of people, in the heart of His people, in the love of His people, in the obedience of His people. It has an eschatological reference, that is, in terms of the big picture. He must increase, his kingdom must increase, his government must increase, said Isaiah, until his kingdom reigns from shore to shore and to the ends of the earth. He must increase, and I must decrease. And it has a personal relevance to us, doesn't it? Nobody, nobody can one at the same time say, I am special, I am great, I'm a great preacher, I'm a great this or a great that, and at the same time say, Jesus is Lord. It cannot be done. Jesus is a great Savior. There's no room for another great when you say Jesus is a great Savior. Do you know at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether in your lifetime you have heard the greatest preachers in the world. It doesn't matter whether in your lifetime you've had the greatest religious experiences anybody could have. Every servant of Jesus has only done their job if at you, as your eyes close in death, your heart, your eyes, your affection, your love is directed towards Jesus. I want to say to you, that's all that counts. That's all that counts. What you are on your knees alone speaking to Jesus is what you are. Is what you are. And there is nothing. There is nothing else that matters. Let me tell you. I've been in Christian work for a long time. But there's nothing else that matters. Seriously, folks. Only that Jesus is lifted up. That Jesus, He's the one that gets you up in the morning. He's the one that puts you to sleep at night. He's the one who cares for you during the night. He's all that matters. He's all that matters. So what about this question of purification? Where did it go to? I'm not sure. That was the issue, wasn't it? But it wasn't the issue. The issue was rivalry. But why a debate over purification? John Piper, in one of his sermons, has a, an observation from this passage that I think is a useful observation. He said, in a sense, if you ask the purification of question of John the Baptist, 
John the Baptist would probably point you to his great statement. You remember, this is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But actually, that connection is not made in the text here. What is the connection, though, that is made in the text? The connection that's made in the text is the connection that Jesus is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. And who has drawn our attention to this connection? Well, it's John the Baptist, but it's also John the Evangelist who records this incident. And John the Evangelist is going to write other books in the Bible. He's going to write the book of Revelation, for example. In the book of Revelation, he's going to, he, he's going to record the report, this vision in chapter 21. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He's taken up and he's shown the bride adorned for her husband. Pure, clean, pure. Or the apostle Paul, who uses the same idea, you remember, when he's telling husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And he reminds them that Christ gave himself up for her, that is the church, to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Maybe John is referring to Jesus as the bridegroom to ultimately answer the question of purification. He is the Lamb. He purifies us. He is the bridegroom who makes the relationship what it should be. So John is a model believer here. He points to Jesus. He points to himself. Explains who he is in relation to Jesus. And then in verses 31 to 36, and we have to be very quick, why it matters. Why it matters. Why does all this matter? And here's why it matters. Because of who the Son is. The Son's origins. Verse 31, he who is from above is above all. He who is from above is above all. That is, he comes from heaven and he's above all. Verse 34, he whom God has sent utters the words of God. There are two kinds of people. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, human birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, spiritual birth. Everybody born of human birth is flesh. That's all we are, flesh. We are mortal. So he says, you notice, he who is born of the earth belongs to the earth. But Jesus is from heaven. Or or to use the language of Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from earth, the man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. Secondly, the Son's witness. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard. Jesus came into the world in order to talk about what he'd seen and heard. He comes with these heavenly realities. He comes to speak about heavenly realities. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, God is true. So that whatever Jesus says is God speaking. And we know that it's God speaking. Look at what he goes on to say. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So there's the way you and I receive the Spirit. And there's the way Jesus receives the Spirit. He receives the Spirit in his 
fullness, in his perfection, in his completeness. There's no space left. It's all spirit. He is the spirit of Christ. And the Father loves the Son. And the Father gives the Son everything. And the Son uses it in order that he might bless us. This is why it matters. It matters because of who Jesus is. It matters because of Jesus' witness. And it matters ultimately because, do you see that last verse? Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. That's why it's so important for John to turn the spotlight off himself and onto Jesus. That's why it's so important to John that people are going after Jesus. That's why it's so important for John to tell you that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. Because if you don't go to Jesus, the wrath of God remains in you. There's no hope. There's no future. But a terrible judgment. And a dreadful eternity. Why does it matter? It matters because going to Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell, life and death, everlasting joy, and everlasting, everlasting sorrow. Tonight we come to this table, bread and wine. Bread and wine that symbolize all of the gospel offers to us. Bread and wine that becomes this evening the means by which God reaches out to us, touches us. Through which grace comes whenever we come in faith believing in Jesus. This table will do you no good unless you believe in the Son and have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight as we come now shortly to gather round the table of our Lord, that you would come meet with us, that you would come to help us to be like John in the humility that John had, to stand back and let people come to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we are a, a church with a reputation, but we don't want our reputation to get in the way of Jesus. We are a church that has many multi-talented people, but we don't want our talents to get in the way of Jesus. We want him to be up front, center. We want him to be lifted up, glorified, magnified. We want people to come to him because he alone has eternal life to give. Will you be pleased, Lord, to make us a humble Christ-centered, Christ-exalting people. In his strong name we pray.